0: All right, so uh, this is interview number one from the PJ reunion. I think it went pretty well. Yeah, Cleef Arvidson is awesome.
1: Star winner. Andrew, you got a really good rundown uh, of yeah, your memory. Yeah, so
0: from... um, he was drafted. Initially, it was going to be the Army, and then he was like, you know, he doesn't want to do that. Went Air Force April 1967. By May of 1968, he was deployed to Vietnam as a PJ. so... Literally just a year before uh, joining, he's now, you know, in combat. And that first tour was a tour where he received his uh, Silver Star. And uh, in this interview, he goes over that in pretty great detail. Yeah, I thought
1: other than the fact that he was extricating eight to nine patients, I thought it was awesome that he, like, casually mentioned they were under fire the entire time. But that wasn't even the first thing that came to mind about the rescue After the mission, he ended up staying career in the Air Force, started uh, the paramedic program for PJs, and then kind of, as we know it today, what an STS is, as far as PJs' responsibilities deployed
0: goes. Yeah, he's he's a bit of a visionary. As far as the career field goes, they were pretty resistant to both the STS and becoming paramedics. And uh, I mean, all of those things still stuck around, so that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Awesome.
0: All right.
2: Well, I uh, hope you guys enjoy.
1: All right. So Leif Arvidson, thank you for joining us. Uh, you're actually our first in-person interview, uh, for the mad cat podcast. So yeah, we really appreciate you taking time for us. Um, this is Andrew. I'm Nick. Uh, we have Robbie behind the camera and then Chuck over there on audio so yeah again thank you um, right now we'd love it if you could introduce yourself and, and your background to us
2: my name's Leif Arvidson um, I'm a former pararescueman uh, served from 1967 to 1993. okay where did you grow up Leif? I grew up on on the outskirts of Seattle Washington uh, My parents moved to Los Angeles uh, during my high school years, so I enlisted out of the LA area. Okay, and then did you immediately go into pararescue? Back in the day, uh, I had the draft. And um, I was a horrible high school student. And there was no future for me in college. And uh, I was faced with the decision of going in the army or uh, or something worse. So I enlisted in the Air Force and I was going to be a communications electronic specialist. That's a telephone repairman. And um, I ran into a recruiter, a pararescueman, while I was in BASIC who offered an opportunity to try out. And uh, so, no, I didn't just go in pararescue right away. Uh, but I did out of basic. Okay. Can you explain
1: some of the training you did on the way to becoming a PJ, uh, like in the pipeline?
2: Some of the what? Some of the training that you did. Well, again, back in, back in those days, uh, training consisted mostly of just running and swimming and calisthenics. And, um, the only piece of workout equipment that we had was, um, an old piece of PSP runway matting. Uh, The pipeline began with what we called the OLJ at Orlando Air Force Base. Uh, It had a weed-filled lake and uh, a park that we would run around endless times. Um, The pipeline was kind of brief uh in that we went to jump school first dive school second med school third uh and then they would route us to eglin air force base where the pararescue school was uh, at that time vietnam was going on and they were trying to beef the career field up to meet the uh, mission demands and uh, so we had a lot of, there were a lot of classes in the pipeline, and um, they got backed up. They had no dorm space for us at Eglin, and so they sent my class to Panama to go through jungle survival, uh, just to kill time, and then we got back from that, and they still didn't have space for us, so they sent us to Mountain Ranger School. We went. Finished that, went through what they called pararescue transition, and then off to our units. Okay,
1: and then what were your units that you were a part of for the duration of your career?
2: Um, Well, I went to Vietnam to begin with. Uh, I went to DET-9, 38-day RRS, which uh, was at Pleiku. And Pleiku, if you look at the map, is kind of tucked right up under the... um, Cambodian border, uh, way inland, Um, it was a less than desirable assignment. Uh, Most people, most PJs tried to avoid it. And those with a little bit of rank and money who could buy a bottle of whiskey could bribe their way out of it. Um, I then went to Guam which was strictly an HC-130 unit. We did long-range over the Pacific Rescue. Um, I went from there to Pease Air Force Base, New Hampshire, which was also a 130 unit. Uh, My first exposure to Jolly Greens came at Eglin. Then I went to Okinawa and uh, various units after that. I spent two tours in the schoolhouse at uh, Kirtland, uh, a tour in Korea. Um, And then I kind of finished out my career by being drafted to work with special operations on the Panama operation and Desert Shield. Okay. And then after that, they had to find an assignment for me and they sent me to the school as the Commandant.
0: For, uh, for Vietnam, how much time was it from the time you enlisted to the time that you deployed to Vietnam?
2: I'm sorry. How much time
0: was it between the time that you enlisted into uh, the Air Force to the time
2: that you deployed to Vietnam? It was a year, almost exactly. Uh, I enlisted in April of 1967, and um, I was deployed to Vietnam in May of 1968. Did you feel equipped and prepared for no, what you saw? absolutely not. Uh, Pararescue training back then was... a a lot of field, so we did a lot of navigation, a lot of backpacking, Uh, went to mountain ranger school, which was a lot of climbing, uh, and uh, rock work. Um, Medical school was wholly inadequate. Uh, We were, we went to um, med tech training, which taught us how to uh, change bedpans, and um, we got a little bit of IV training, which consisted of maybe four or five or six IV insertions. We were taught how to apply a dressing. Uh, We made a few jumps, a couple of tree jumps, uh, and then my orientation into helicopters was, I think, three days where they took us out. They showed us the emergency equipment on board. Uh, They showed us the hoist penetrator. And um, that was it.
0: And then during Vietnam, what was the operational tempo like? Were you going out almost daily?
2: No. There was long periods of boredom uh, interspersed with moments of sheer terror. I was I was kind of a mission magnet in when I seemed to be there when something went down and um, I was an airman first class two striper uh, and I got my orientation and my check out on the helicopter and we began flying quite a few medevacs uh, out of the area along the Cambodian border for the army. Uh, I wasn't doing a lot of treatment. We were picking up the patients who had already been through a triage and uh, initial treatment from the army and taking them to the hospital. Um, At a very young age, I got exposed to a couple of missions which seemed to be a catalyst for my attitude towards the rest of my career. And um, the first mission we had a couple of bases in Vietnam that were rescue units that didn't have PJs. They were flying med techs uh, as their rescue specialist and the med were good they were really good medics um, and they weren't bad as crew members filling the PJ role uh, they they had a, a good combat attitude um, but there weren't enough of them and so they used to TDY PJs in to To augment them. We had a mission going one day and I was still just an E3, uh, very young, very inexperienced. And the Army had taken some casualties in a firefight and they were hoping for some evacuation. And um, we flew into that. our, I was on the high bird number two, behind behind the primary rescue bird, and the pilot made an error on his approach and flew right over the enemy position, and uh, took extensive ground fire, and uh, it killed the pilot, and um, the co-pilot was able to save the the helicopter. Flew about two miles away and had to land, we took, we took the uh, pilot, MedTech and I took the pilot on my bird and performed CPR on the way to Quinone to uh, the hospital and lost him en route.
1: Okay. Were, were there uh, any takeaways from that for you and your team on how to conduct operations in the future?
2: Yeah. You have to be you have to be as ready as you can be with your training and your operational preparation. And then you got to be ready to understand that things never go the way you plan them. And so an attitude towards training and preparation and just being as flexible as you can possibly be Mm. and as disciplined in that framework as you can be.
0: Can you talk over how many deployments you had to Vietnam and how long they lasted? Deployments? Right. On missions? No, just deployments to Vietnam. Oh, I...
2: I... uh, Back then, we um, I started in a seven-man pararescue team. Uh, and right after I got there, four guys finished their tours and left PCS. That left three of us. Um, and that was uh, an E-4 and two E-3s, me and my roommate. Um,
0: Just touching on that real quick, I'm sorry. So the most senior enlisted PJ was an E-4?
2: Yes, a buck sergeant. He He was a former Marine who got out of the Marine Corps and became a PJ. And um, so he was an E-4. My roommate, Dave Patterson, uh, he'd been my roommate all the way through PJ school. We went to Vietnam together. Uh, he and I were both E threes hadn't even, you know, got a promotion yet. And, um, the boss managed to get himself into a helicopter crash and got hurt pretty bad. Um, and they met fact him to Japan and that left my roommate and I two E threes by ourselves as the entire PJ team at this unit and unbeknownst to anybody, uh, the PJs who were coming in country had been dropping off a bottle of whiskey down at third group in Tonsonute and getting assigned to Thailand and Da Nang. And, um, We had an inspection visit, and um, the chief got off the airplane. I went out and met him, and he goes, where's the PJ team? And I told him, well, I'm it. And he goes, oh, no, I got a board down there with all kinds of names on it. And uh, I go, well, Airman Patterson's up in the dorm. He's in crew rest. He's flying tonight. Uh, and I said, we're it. And we did that. Dave and I flew every mission for three months. And with a primary and a backup, that meant both of us were flying every single day. Wow, that's-, that's- so, Oh, now to answer your question, I did two tours. Uh, the macho thing back then was to submit a, an extension when your one year was finishing up, And um, headquarters would routinely look at the paperwork and routinely deny it. And um, my time came around and I did what everybody else did. And I go, oh, geez, guys, I hate to leave you. I, you know, and uh, so I submitted my extension and they approved it. So I went home, came back for another six months Okay.
0: Was that second six months? Was that where you had the mission, where, where you received your Silver Star? I had that mission
2: before uh, before I went home on leave. Um, I don't know how much detail you want on this, but it was kind of a long and grueling mission. Um, I had been at Phuket when we had lost the pilot, and uh, we had to we had to go back down there to pick up some helicopter pod parts. And um, my commander said, "Hey, we want you to go on the mission down there, pick up the helicopter parts, and you can see your friends and uh, see, you know, kind of get together and see how the recovery's going." And um, so it was a Sunday morning uh, flight to Phuket to pick up parts. While, while we were there, we were loading the parts, and the um, alarm bell went off, the scramble bell. And the Army had lost a uh, battalion commander who had been looking at his guys in combat and got shot down and um, pilots came running out and said, you know, unload the parts, just dump them on the ramp. And um, we're going as the third ship. And um, turns out that they had been flying their primary alert bird in the morning. which was a routine, and um, they'd run out of fuel. And so their secondary bird and us flew out to the area, and the Army was making attempts to get into this guy. And um, every time they would make an attempt to pass, they'd get shot at, and they'd have to pull out. So we just kind of joined the army daisy chain overhead. And um, they finally, after a couple of passes, uh, they had some fast movers come in, drop some heavy ordnance and uh, they quieted it down quite a bit. And um, the army finally decided that they just couldn't get anybody on the ground. They didn't have a hoist. Uh, they couldn't find, a, an area to, get down low. And, uh, they asked if anybody had a hoist and our, uh, other helicopter said they, they had a hoist and they'd make the approach. They made the approach and they got shot at and they sustained some battle damage. And they immediately declared an emergency and headed back to Phuket. And that left us as the only hoist equipped aircraft still out there. And, um, a few more fast movers and a little more heavy ordnance, And, uh, they said, we think we're ready for another attempt. Uh, my aircraft commander said, here we go. And so we made the approach and uh, he put me down on the ground, uh, about 50 yards away from the crash. Were you the only PJ on the aircraft? I was the only PJ on the aircraft and I was the only PJ on the ground for several hours. So the pilot was the one that lowered you down on the hoist? The flight engineer put me down and uh, the pilot maintained a, a good steady hover, and uh, put me on a pretty steep hillside in a very, very dense jungle uh, with a lot of deadfall and crap to crawl through. When I got to the crash site, uh, there were nine, nine people in the crash. Uh, it was a Huey, UH-1, um, impacted kind of nose down on a very steep hillside, uh, nine, nine casualties. And, um, so essentially what I'm saying is I was overwhelmed as a two striper with very limited medical training. Uh, what what was a hot situation. Uh, And um, so I went down and I I started looking around, tried to do, tried tried to take my medical training and and put it in perspective and um, I started to triage patients but every time I turn around you know there was something worse that I was looking at so I just started taking people putting a bandage on as best I could and getting them on the hoist to get them out of there. Cause I figured the more I got out, the less problems that I had to contend with. And, um, I got, I got s- several about four or five out. Um, and then I discovered that we had huge problems. Uh, there were two people buried in the wreckage uh, that were still alive. Uh, the helicopter had hit had hit the hillside and rolled sideways. The door gunner who was in the alcove, the helicopter rolled over on him. And uh, it pinned him, but it didn't crush him and we couldn't see him. we couldn't get to him. There was no way to even access him. And I could tap on the wreckage and I could talk to him. And then I found the pilot of the helicopter. When it hit, his seat and everything pushed him into the hillside, into the dirt. And I couldn't see him and we had we we didn't have the tools to remove wreckage. So uh, I got there about nine in the morning and uh, I worked until about noon until the second PJ got there. And um, that was Lonnie Connor. And um, Lonnie and I started cutting wreckage as best we could with the crash ax off the helicopter and our K-Bar knives. And we would just wedge a K-Bar into uh, a crack in the metal and pound on it. And when when one guy got tired pounding, the other would trade and we'd sharpen tools.
0: At this time, were you receiving any enemy
2: fire or? anything like that yes the whole time um we were getting when we when i had all the when i had all the patients uh before i started getting people out they told me that we're taking fire and we're just standing around and uh, they're saying oh yeah we're we're taking enemy fire and i'm kind of went by it didn't register and um after the third PJ got there, uh young man by the name of Joan Stamey, who was my one of my classmates, um I was sitting up on the side of the Huey sharpening K-bar knives, and I noticed the uh It was a beautiful December day. I mean, it was just gorgeous. Sun was out, sky was blue, no wind. And um, I thought I heard locust. And uh, there was green, shrubbery, falling. And uh, it was coming down like a little snowfall around us. And uh, I stopped and thought about that for a minute. And then I told Connor, I said, that's not a locust, they're shooting at us. And, um, we had, we had really limited options at what, at what we could do. And, um, it was about two in the afternoon and, uh, we weren't making a lot of progress. We had got people out. Most of of the casualties could have been airlifted. Uh, They finally got the second second chopper back, and uh, so we were able to get some litters out. Uh, Two in the afternoon, I began to realize that we weren't going to make it. Uh, This thing was just not going to work out. And um, so I started calling Crown, which was the C-130. It was the forerunner of the King, and that I called them. Told them we need we need security because we're going to be here a long time. And um, at first they were reluctant to insert anybody else. Uh, because when dark came, they weren't going to be able to secure us. And um, so we we kept working. They finally found us an eight-man long-range patrol uh, who they, the Army picked up uh, off of a uh, mission they were on, brought them out, and they repelled them into us, and that gave us some security. Uh, The long range patrol had never repelled from a helicopter before. They didn't have gloves. And so what I ended up with was eight more casualties. And uh, so I broke off from working in the helicopter and went down to where we put the patrol and I started treating uh, severe lacerations and burns. Um, there was one more individual who was just incredibly brave. And, uh, he was an engineer on an army light observation helicopter. And, uh, they hovered into a green patch that they thought was tall grass. And he jumped in and he probably dropped 20 feet through bamboo and just lacerated the crap out of him. And he had a piece of bamboo that went in under his chin and out through his cheek. And uh, I treated him. He didn't want to, he wouldn't leave. And so we put him to work all bandaged up. He helped out. Do you remember his name? No, I don't. I. Uh, Never seen him before. Uh, he just... I didn't even know that he had jumped in uh, kind of behind my back, and he comes walking up with this bamboo and and uh, said, I'm here to help. Uh, wow. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs>
0: just one more uh, casualty for you.
2: <laughs> so as it got towards... 4 o'clock we started getting into twilight and um we did get the pilot out finally we were able to clear enough wreckage that we were able to pull the pins on his seat recline it and pull him out we evac him the door gunner we were making small progress we were finally able to cut away enough uh sheet metal uh had a lot less success on the ribs of the uh, helicopter. And um, finally, the Crown called FuCat, and they got a firefighter and who volunteered to come out and get lowered into the site with a K2 saw. And um, we cut, some of the sheet metal and the ribs away, were able to reach the door gunner, but he was pinned down inside, so we had more work to do. Uh, Crown told us to pack up and get ready to leave. And uh, the three of us said, no, we're not going. Uh, you know, can that idea. And um, so they had us loading litters with weapons and classified while we were still trying to work to get the door gunner out. Um, They said, this is your last chance, get out. And they said, we'll sanitize the site and uh, we'll take care of the problem. And um, the three of us decided that we weren't leaving. Uh, we were gonna we were gonna stay as long as it took, and um, it got dark, and um, we got we started hoisting the security team out about 5:30, and um, we got the door gunner. Uh, Just amazing. We finally got enough metal and crap cut away that we were able to drag him out of there and we hoisted him out. Uh, I went out at six o'clock at night and it was pitch black. And um, we were doing, we were sending people to a mortar site, a hilltop mortar site a uh, few miles away and that's where they were being transloaded to Army Hueys and flown to the hospital. I um, They flew me to the hilltop site because the helicopters still had a couple more loads. They had to get the other two PJs out. Um, and um, there were two Rangers or the long range patrol guys that had, that had stayed with the last two PJs and, um, they hoisted the two, the two long range patrol guys. And then one of the PJs took this big toolbox and he put it on their lap between them. And, um, they hoisted the two long-range patrol guys up, and just as the engineer turned them to pull them into the helicopter, uh, the hoist cable broke, and um, he had put his arms around the guy on top to pull him in, and. Um, the engineer's name was Jesse Franklin, and um, the pilot was Major uh, Juan Mejia. And uh, when the cable broke, Jesse was able to catch it. He he actually caught two guys in a toolbox, and held on to them. And Major Mejia uh, unstrapped in the pilot seat and he put one leg outside on the step and he helped Jesse hang on to the two rangers or the long range patrol guys, I'm sorry. Um, They flew, the the co-pilot flew the three or four miles to the landing zone and they landed and then dropped them on the ground. And this is where I was. I went over and I wasn't thinking, but I unhooked them from the uh, from the forest penetrator because they were flopping around like a couple of seals. And uh, then I asked the pilot, I said, you going back in? And he goes, he points down at the penetrator. And then it dawns on me that penetrator was broke or the hoist cable was broke. So he says, get in, we're going home. And so I got in, flew back to Phuket and that's how that mission went. Wow. So you, you casually
1: mentioned that you were under fire the entire time. I think it's a testament to your bravery. Did you ever think you were gonna get overrun?
2: A yes. I, yes, there was a time about four four o'clock in the afternoon that I was pretty well convinced in my mind that we weren't going to make it. We were going to end up spending the night. And they had already told us that once it got dark, they couldn't hold them off. And um, so it was just a matter of, we just had to keep working. Absolutely. And we couldn't we couldn't leave the door gunner. We couldn't. That's such that whole thing when I when I heard what they what they were going to do, that was just
1: we couldn't do it. Um, just to paint a little bit of a picture about the enemy that you were facing, what were some of the tactics that you were expecting them to do when the night fell?
2: I had no idea. Um I, I had, I had no idea. I, uh, i had been in, been in country eight, nine months. I'd been, I'd flown a lot of medevacs. I had had the one previous encounter with a firefight. Uh, but I didn't really know anything about enemy. T- I was an airman. Uh, I was an <laughs> airman with, with no adult supervision uh, and um, but we were on a hillside. They were shooting up out of the valley at us, and um, so I figured I figured that as soon as it got dark, they were going to be coming up up the hill.
0: So what what was like the atmosphere like at the crash site where you guys are trying to extricate? What's, what was the atmosphere like? At the crash site, where you guys understood that if you guys didn't get this guy out by nightfall, then you guys were likely gonna die. Were you guys? Was the urgency just insane?
2: No, never changed. Um, Lonnie Connor, when he got there, he was a he was a buck sergeant. He was knee an four, and he didn't assume command or anything. I was first guy in, so I was sort of. I was sort of in charge of everything because I had a, a picture of what was going on on the ground. And I'd been there a while. Um, but the atmosphere was just, we've got to do this. This is, this is, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to pound on this metal, uh, in shifts. Uh, we're going to, you know, when you get, when you get blisters and, uh And we need to switch, we'll switch. And it was just, it was just professional. Professional is really not a, not a good word. It was, it was, this is what we're going to do. Nobody complained. Uh, The Army guys were incredibly brave and, uh, they didn't complain, and um, nobody, you know, nobody whined. Nobody said they wanted out of here. Uh, it was just, it was a very good working environment. We just, we just kind of did what we needed to do, and um, I ran out of medical supplies on the ground, uh, evacuating people. My engineer, in the helicopter. Uh, he carried a small personal medical kit and, um, he was bandaging, uh, wounded when I would send them up and, uh, cause I was only doing enough to get them off the ground and into the helicopter. And he was, he was applying bandages to head wounds and, uh, everybody just sort of did what. They were supposed to do. Wow. How oh, old hey, are you? you? How old are you at yeah. the
0: time? I'm sorry. How old are you at the time?
2: Uh, I think I was 20. Um, yeah, because I hadn't reached my 21st birthday. Um, and um, Vietnam was was that kind of a was that kind of an experience where I don't know how pararescue is today uh, I've been retired for a very long time. We didn't have a lot of equipment we didn't have a lot of technology uh, we just had to rely on uh, our gut. Uh, and our and keep our emotions in check to keep us going.
1: Where your lack of technology and equipment these days, we're very well equipped, so it's it's definitely a difference. But what I think is always a constant is that we're always working to save people's lives. And I think your actions that you took that day on December 11th it was uh, extraordinary. So thank you for summing that up for us. Um, did you, that was the beginning of your career. Did you have any other missions that you would like to talk about
2: that? I have one other mission that I would like to tell you guys about, uh, because I think it was, well, it was what defined my, my, that portion of my early career in Vietnam. Um, again back in the day i was assigned to the hh-43 helicopters which was uh the husky and it was designed in the 50s as a firefighting piece of equipment um it would fly with a large fire extinguisher suspended underneath the helicopter and the helicopter had side-by-side intermeshing rotors uh, provided a lot of downdraft, uh, for firefighting and, um, our primary mission when we weren't flying combat missions was to provide, uh, cover for aircraft coming back on emergencies and, um, nothing ever happened. I mean, you, you, They would come in, land, we'd trail them down the runway to make sure they didn't crash and burn. It was routine, nothing ever happened. And one day when I was on alert, late in the afternoon, we had a Huey that crashed off the approach end of the runway at Pleiku. And um, the end of the runway was no man's land, I mean there was nothing out there. There were no roads out there, uh, nothing. And, um, we got scrambled, we could get off the ground in about a minute and a half is what our target was to be able to pick the helicopter up, hook the fire extinguisher. The, it was called an FSK fire suppression kit, hook that up and be on our way. So a minute and a half after the Huey crashed, we were on our way. And it was myself and two firefighters uh, in the back, pilot and co-pilot in the front, and uh, flew out there. And um, the Huey was engulfed in flames. And um, we did just exactly what we were trained to do. Uh, They lowered the fire suppression kit onto the ground. And um, then they back off a little bit, land. Firefighters in their firefighting bunkers jumped out. And I jumped out, my junk fatigues. And uh, the firemen start to pull the hose out. My job is once they get the hose out, is to throw the handle and charge the kit. And um, then the pilot picks up the helicopter, backs away a little bit, approaches in over the top and begins to try and blow the flames down. Um, Did exactly what we're supposed to do. The only problem was the fireman would pull the hose forward a little bit and it would get tangled. And so I would move up, pick the hose up and untangle it. And um, they would pull the hose forward again a little bit and it would tangle and I'd move forward and pick the hose up and untangle it. And um, pretty soon I was inside the wreckage burning in my jungle fatigues, working with the two firemen in their bunkers trying to get to the crew. Um, In the meantime, I determined that everybody was pretty, probably pretty much dead. And, uh, but there were two bodies that we wanted to retrieve that we could get to. And, um, it was difficult to untangle them, um, and we began to work and work and um, I was standing right at uh, right at the door of the cockpit, and I'm pulling on what I think was the co-pilot, and um, I noticed that there was stuff moving under my feet. And um, just, there were things that would move. And um, I didn't realize what it was until I kind of stopped and looked down and I realized I was standing on 50 Cal ammunition that was cooking off. And uh, it was going off very quickly, uh, like firecrackers. And, um, the helicopter got 75 hits and shredded the, uh, the rotor blades. And, um, we were in the, the firefighters and I were in that, in that helicopter for the best part of an hour. And, um, again, the lesson I, I got from that was you just do what you need to do. Uh, you can't control the, the environment you're in, uh, and you just, you know, do the best you can. You just keep doing the best you can until you either succeed or don't.
1: Wow. That's uh, that's a crazy story. Did you sustain any burn injuries on your legs?
2: We, uh... I've managed to stay in touch with one of those firefighters uh, ever since then. And... uh, He turns 80 in November and I'm going to go back and we're going to celebrate his birthday because I never expected that day to make it this far. Wow.
1: Um, You'd mentioned to us to shift gears maybe a little bit after post-Vietnam. You'd mentioned to us that you have a few Charlie stories.
2: (laughs) Um, Yeah, Charlie... I spent a long time in pararescue, and I I went from that airman up to uh, being NCYC of a team. And uh, when I was a rather young, I was a young tech sergeant at Eglin, and uh, we had Charlie and um, my boss, the NCIc. He hadn't, we hadn't developed a security system for Charlie yet. And, um, so we were hosting the first ever pararescue EMT course. And we were having guys from all over the United States come in and uh, attend this course. And, uh, Joe Fernandez told me, he says, Sergeant Robertson, says I want you to get Charlie out of sight and don't let anybody find it. And so I took Charlie, uh, threw him in an A3 bag, put him in my trunk with my car, and drove him home. Uh, my best friend in Pararescue is a guy by the name of Eric Gregory. And um So he came in for the EMT course and he was staying with me. Gregory is also a locksmith and he was running the locksmith shop on base at McClellan. And so he would take my car every night and he would go to the PJ section and he would open locks and look for Charlie and he went through every locker, every foot locker, every, every inch of PJ section and couldn't find Charlie. So he flew home to McClellan, and then he calls me on the phone and he goes, Okay, where was Charlie? And I said, He was in the trunk of the car, you drove him to work every night. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Not your typical Charlie story. No,
1: no, yeah. What did you think when you saw him yesterday? Or did you see him? Uh, What's that? Did you see him at the opening ceremonies yesterday?
2: He, we flew down together. He, he retired uh, out of Kirtland. Okay. And uh, we're so close. Uh, he's closer than any family I have. Okay.
1: Well, at the end of the interviews, we like to kind of... Uh, give you time to tell us what impact you made on the community. What do you think you did in your career as a PJ? And it's a long one. I don't think we did it justice with the time that we spent today for the hour that we've been together. But What do you think you did for the community that has had a lasting impact?
2: Um, When I, when I started in pararescue as that airman, Um, I was at Orlando Air Force Base in Orlando. Um, Headquarters Air Rescue was there at the time, and I remember some of the old grizzled PJs, and they were wearing combat infantry badges, and uh, they were World War II vets, Korean vets, and they were just hard, hard, hard men. And, um, I took that image and I kind of felt like that's what I wanted to be. And that's what a PJ was. They were hard and they were disciplined. And I tried to instill that discipline in everybody that I worked with after that, um, That you, you put the beret on and you honor the tradition that went before you. And you don't do anything ever to tarnish that image and honor that you owe the guys who went before. Because this is what you're giving to the future and um, I did a tour as the commandant at Lackland uh, and I tried to instill that in my students there Um, I had an opportunity to leave there and uh, go to several teams where I worked with uh, young paratroopers that I had recruited, and uh, I tried to make sure that they got that sense of discipline at the OL, and that we maintained that sense of discipline on the teams.
0: Great. Yeah. Do you have any other lessons that you took away from your service, that you that transitioned to the civilian world that you know you used in the civilian
2: world? Um, lessons that I took away uh, yeah uh, well the the thing that I mentioned earlier is just be ready for anything because you never know what's coming down the pike at you and um, the um, you gotta, I I learned that you have to learn to think on your feet and sometimes, sometimes hurting PJs in a direction that you want them to go is kind of a difficult thing. Um, Kind of a long, not a longish story, but um, my last Operational team that I was on was at Eglin, and it was when we had a pararescue squadron. The squadron was a worldwide operation. Uh, we had debts in the Pacific. We had debts in Europe. We had uh, debts in uh, in the states, and at Eglin. We were supporting the 1724th uh, a lot up at Pope. And um, we were an ARS, an air rescue unit at Eglin. So we were flying the 53s and the 130s. And we were also sending guys up to Pope to uh, help them out when they were short of manpower. Um, there were two factions on the team. There was a faction that wanted to be just ARS, old time helicopter, 130 PJs. And there was a faction that wanted to kind of get in bed with the guys at Pope because that's where the money and the manpower was going towards special operations. I was very much in support of the special operations mission. Um, And, um, I was in the minority at Eglin, And, um, so I, I wanted to, I wanted to get young PJs towards the hill as much as I could to get that exposure and experience because I figured if anything happened, that's where the mission was going to be. And um, so we had kind of an internal war going on amongst these two factions at Agwin, and it was very brutal uh, with knives and stuff out you had to watch your back, and um, something funny happened. Um, they were shutting PJ units down all over the United States, all over Europe, and they were funneling the PJs onto this one team at Eglin as kind of a holding point. And, um, they, they closed the flying squadron, which took away our support. And they told all the, all the PJs, if you have time to PCS, you will get a PCS. If you've been on station a certain amount of time, those who don't have time will stay here with no support and then once you get time, we're going to ship you out. And um, they shut the squadron down. They gave all of the, all of the ARS supporting pararescuemen who had been homesteading there for a long time, they gave them orders to leave and most of them retired. And that left me in charge of a large pararescue team. I had 42 PJs, no flying support, no nothing. And I had a combat control team at Hurlburg that didn't have any parachutes. And so we started talking. And uh, I got hooked up with a combat controller, uh, major Mike Longoria and uh, what an awesome individual. And he and I went to lunch and we began to brainstorm about what if we were to combine assets and create a uh, green suit special tactics unit. And um, then we could support the Pope guys, and provide them all the support they need, and we'd have these combined assets, and on, on the combat controllers and the PJs would speak the same language, work out of the, f- the same facilities, and I liked the idea, and so we combined. We well, we I began to move. Some of some of my guys over to Hurlburt to work. They were still assigned at Eglin, but I would I told them you go to work at at Hurlburt. I moved my training section over there, and I I kind of held the parachutes at Eglin because I wasn't quite ready to go all in. And um, just about that time, the senior master sergeant, who was the NCUIC of the team at Pope, made chief. And at that time, the Air Force was retaining chiefs into any specialty they wanted. You could be a PJ one day and a plumber the next as a chief. And he panicked. And I would have, too, if I were him. And he left Pope in a hurry. And that left us a slot up there vacant. And so they reached out and I was the senior PJ on the East coast. And they said, you now are attached to POPE to work for General Steiner as a rescue coordinator in the, in the jock. I had no experience there. I hadn't even, I hadn't even done a deployment that I'd been sending my guys on. Um, and so I started working up there twice a month, uh, for three days and we were planning Panama. And, um, so major Longoria and I would go up to the planning conference. I couldn't tell any of the guys on the team what I was doing, but I was disappearing on Wednesday, showing back up on Monday a couple times a week or a month. Couldn't tell my wife what I was doing. And um, we ended up we ended up doing Panama with them. And uh, they shipped me PJs from McClellan I uh, combined them, so he had about, I had about 60 PJs that we augmented the hill with, and um, I got an opportunity to go and work for the Air Boss for General Steiner as the rescue coordinator for Panama. And um, I think what I'm trying to say is that you just you just never know what is coming. And having a disciplined mindset and being able to kind of be flexible is really important.
1: I think when you were kind of telling us that story, I think you started kind of what the concept is for a special tactics squadron in a way. I'm sorry? I think as you were explaining that story, I think you started what is now a special tactics squadron by allowing for PJs to go work on combat
2: control teams. There was no, there was no green suit special tactics team when I started that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was an idea Major Longoria and I, Put that. We both knew that uh, that was the future. What was happening to the PJ teams is it started when I was at McCallum, and um, when air assets, the 130s and the 53s, were transitioned to Task Force 160. Uh, P.J.'s being assigned or being manpowered against the 53s, every time a 53 went from rescue to 160, manpower was falling out of the books on my team. I was losing slots. And it it doesn't take a mathematician to figure out that when the last 53 is gone, pararescue is gone. And um, that's what bugged me so bad about that faction that was so hard over about, we want to stay on the helicopters. We want to be down the hoist PJs. There were some very bright, very senior people that just didn't seem to understand that that's a death spiral and if we don't do something uh else we're not going to be there anymore
0: talk about a legacy you're basically the godfather of uh sts
2: the special I, tactics yeah <laughs> uh, i don't i don't mean to blow my own horn but <laughs> not none of that existed and uh 88, 89. And um, Major Longoria and I put that, and that was not an altogether happy union. There, there were a lot of my guys that told me, you know, we are not going to do this. And I've had that happen a couple of times in my career. The guys would dig their heels in and say, we're not going to do this. and. I had to. I had to do things to people, to very, very good people on my team. I had. To, I had to. Sideline. Yeah,
1: I think leaders make hard decisions even when it's not popular, and that's a sign of a good leader. Uh, and I think you did that.
2: I have. I have one more thing I'd like to share with you, and this is. Um, when, uh, we did Panama and Panama was very successful and, um, it was 15 days and uh, that we were down, that I was down there and we had Noriega by then and we done the exfil on the, range, on the uh, Seals at Petit Airfield. Um, at that point, I was a senior master sergeant. And um, the uh, the team at Hurlberg was beginning to function pretty well. and. Um, I was on vacation, my wife and I had ridden a Goldwing up the Appalachians up into Quebec, Canada, and we were touring Quebec, and I was at St. Catharines on the north side of the falls, and uh, I saw the invasion of Kuwait going on on TV. And my wife was a little brighter by now, and uh, she asked me if I wanted to go home. And I told her, well, I said, you know, if, if they want me, they'll find me. And so we finished our bike trip, and I went home, got home, walked in the house, set the helmets on the counter. I was there no more than 20 minutes, and the phone rang, and it was Colonel John Carney. And uh, Colonel Carney uh, was running the group at Horlberg. That, was, that had control over the PJs and combat controllers. And I had worked through him on Panama, and he said, Sergeant Arvidsson, pack a bag, we're going to MacDill. And um, so him and me and uh, Major Longoria, uh, a couple of Rangers, uh, went to MacDill, got a briefing from the four-star and uh, we on the first plane to the desert, the very first aircraft that flew into the desert. And um, so we went over and um, Major Longori and I planned. And um, we, uh, we had never, done anything like this before where we sat down and go, okay, if we go north, what do we take and how do we take it? How how do we build this chalk to go on the aircraft so that we have enough people on the aircraft to go forward? Um, and we, he and I had a little cubicle and, um, we worked and worked and worked on this, and um, Major Longoria and I built a uh, a plan on how how to get stuff to an airfield, and then how to leapfrog and move forward from there. And um, we were he and I would he and I would work from five in the morning to just about midnight, every day. He was an academy grad. Let me get that out first. He was not an OCS. He was not a guy with a degree that became a combat controller. He was an honest-to-God officer uh, with something upstairs. And um, so he would stand at the whiteboard, and he would draw these arrows and things like that and I would sit at a laptop and I would write it all down and I would make notes in my green ledger. And um, The wing staff had gone to Riyadh to brief Schwarzkopf and um, he had told them that if that's all special ops has to offer, then they would, they could go home, just get out of his theater. And, um, they had, they had been kind of sidelining Longoria at the wing meetings and he'd been telling them, we can, you know, we can build these, these, uh, sites. And the day after they, the wing came back and they had essentially been thrown out of the theater. Came down to see me and they, they of nervous. And do you have that plan that Longoria wrote up? And I go, yeah, I got my laptop. I'll print you a copy. And, uh, so I printed copy. They took it up to the wing staff meeting wing took it to Riyadh and that actually became Schwarzkopf's end run about how to bypass the Iraqi forces and get in behind them. We, um, there was not enough chalk space to take people to refuel helicopters. And so we ended up having to train PJs to run FARPs, to marshal aircraft and pump fuel, put medical supplies on, take casualties off, all on night vision goggles in a dark FARP. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, when that when that mission concluded. And it was hugely successful. Um, I went to the after-action conference at Fort Bragg. And the Ranger docs uh, got a hold of me. And they, they said, Sergeant is they said, we love PJs. But if you don't give us a better medic, uh, the Army's going to take your mission because pararescue had never transitioned out of hospital corpsman. Our medical course was still not certified, and EMT had come along. Uh, We couldn't get guys in the hospital for training because the hospital had no way to verify our qualification level. So in the meantime, I accidentally got promoted and uh, Rescue had to find a job for me. And they sent me to Kirtland. And um, there was a doctor there teaching PJ medicine, uh, John Columbus. And he actually had his office right in the PJ school, which was kind of neat. And he was a flight surgeon, and his patients would come in to the PJ school all day. Um, Doc and I got to talking one day and I said, I told him, I said, doc, this is what they're saying. You know, they said, they're going to do PJs on the special ops in the special ops community if we don't get a better medic. And I said, we need, we need to do an EMT two at least. And, um, the urgency was kind of immense because didn't have time to politic. This didn't have time to convince the PJ community that this was important because I was just a, you know, a lowly enlisted type. And I had no pull at headquarters, uh, had no friends up there even really. And so, um, Doc Columbus and I were talking about it. Doc says, you know, he says, why don't we just go for the whole enchilada and make them paramedics? And I was like, that'll never fly. And he says, Mac controls the PJ medical course, not rescue. He says, the military airlift command Mac Surgeon General controls course. And, uh, he says, we can do it. So with no, no adult leadership whatsoever, Doc Columbus and I decided that we were going to make PJs paramedics without anybody's approval. And, um, so we did. He he went to the University of New Mexico, and he borrowed their syllabus. Um, I politicked what little politicking needed to be done on the PJ side. We held a couple of video conferences uh, with Military Airlift Command, and they gave us dispensation to do it. We put the program together. I had guys in my medical staff who again said, no, we are not going to do this. And I would say, you are no longer a medical instructor. Um, I had rescue had gotten wind of what we were doing and they started routing people in PCS. I believe it was an attempt to undermine what we were doing. And so I told him, I met him at the door and said, you can't come in the PJ school. Uh, As long as I'm here, you will not step foot in this building. And um, so I sent him elsewhere. And um, we put it together we ran it twice and um, my career was over. My career was essentially over when we decided to do paramedic. And um, so we ran, we ran it twice and it worked. We um, took a guy from know nothing uh, medical to paramedic in four months. And we started sending them out to the career field, and the Garden Reserve were just devastated because we were taking a guy, sending them to him that they had to put in the hospital for four months a year, which just wreaked havoc with their with their manpower and their aircraft support. Yeah. Well, ultimately
1: that voted well for PJs. So obviously, it stood the test of time, PJs as paramedics. And I think that's a contribution to lives saved in combat in the next wars we were
2: in. We had to put a better medic on the battlefield. And um, paramedic was the best we could do. And if you're going to send a PJ, send the best. Yeah, absolutely. We'll leaf. Thank you so
1: much for your time. Uh, it was an honor to t- sit down and talk to you. Do you have anything else? No, not
2: at all. Just thank you. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity to tell my story. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Leaf.